Hey, Nothing is Wasted family, it's official. We have just launched our Nothing is Wasted community groups platform, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. What if you could find true, authentic community in the midst of your valley? Imagine walking this journey with people who are also walking the same valley as you and are committed to helping each other move through it in a God-honoring way. Imagine getting hopeful encouragement and helpful advice from folks who are just a little further along in the journey. Now, we've been imagining it for years now, and we're thrilled that it's finally become a reality in the form of Nothing is Wasted community groups. To join the groups, all you have to do is go to nothingiswasted.com slash community groups, click on join a group, and then it'll take you into the portal to create a login and a profile. From there, you can join a group or a couple of groups that apply to you and you can start making some connections. We believe there's going to be so much healing and so many lifelong friendships that come out of this. I can't wait to see what God does through it. Again, it's nothingiswasted.com slash community groups. Can't wait to see you there. Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host. And joining me, our guest co-host for the month of April, Maria Hatch-Bowersock. Hello. Maria, how are you? <laughs> Good. I'm excited to be here. You know, every time I say your name to my wife, my family, they were leaving today to get ready for us to do this podcast. And I was like, oh yeah, Maria's coming over to do this and she's co-hosting. All I had in my mind was the sound of music. I knew it. I knew you, knew that's you were where I was going, going to say that because I cannot tell <laughs> you, you how many... a problem many... like Maria? Yes. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people, how many people say that. Uh, man, yeah. Well, it is so good to have you joining us this month. We're I'm really excited, excited to be here. Those of you guys who um, maybe you haven't listened to our episode, you need to go back and listen to it. Episode 64. And Maria shares her story um, of profound pain and loss of uh, losing her parents in an uh, airplane crash mm-hmm. uh, that also put her brother into critical condition. Yeah. And so we talked quite a bit about your healing journey. We talked mm-hmm. about the national news frenzy right. that it was, navigating all of that. You and I had a lot of that in common, and we're able to talk about some of those nuances of grieving in those kinds of spaces. Yeah. But you also, you know, you're a, you're a, a full time mom right now, yeah. yes. as well as doing a lot of other ministry type yep. things. You and I were just talking about some of the speaking engagements mm-hmm. that you are now taking to talk about pain and suffering and yep. trauma and grief, as well as writing. Yeah. So, woman of many talents. Oh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so, maybe. <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, today we've got this incredible interview with Nona Jones. Mm-hmm. And I know you've listened to this. I yes. can't wait for the listener to hear this. But um, I thought maybe we would start the conversation around this idea of coping mechanisms. Yeah. Because one of the things that, you know, you're going to hear in this conversation, you're going to hear Nona talking about how she kind of had this moment where she realized there was a lot of trauma in her past that she Mm -hmm. had not dealt with, but she had coped with instead. And I think this is so prevalent for us. Mm -hmm. And I began thinking about, Mm -hmm. for me, like, what are some, like, 
coping. Me- they're subtle. Like you, you can miss them. You totally can. But like I have coping mechanisms that are maybe maybe not healthy. Right. That I have to I have to war against. What about right. you? Do you how do you feel about all of that? Well, I have taken some time to think about this because I have I would say in my past, like after the plane crash, um, I went through a season where I, where I was grieving, and in that developed some really unhealthy coping mechanisms, mm. but I don't know that I would have, I would have thought that they were coping. Yeah. Um, I thought I was just kind of like living life in mm. this new way. Okay. Um, but really like coming to learn like coping is anytime we're suppressing our feelings yeah, and we're right. not facing our feelings. And I didn't come to learn that until later. And wow, so now I can look back because mm-hmm. hindsight 2020, right? Like now I can look back and see how unhealthy some of my co- coping mechanisms have been. And one of them at the time that was probably my go-to was alcohol. Mm. Um it wasn't like to the level of alcoholism, but right, it was right. definitely like every night of the week I had to have a glass of wine. And, yeah. and some people can do that. And some people can do that and it'd be right. normal. But I right. know for me, like yeah. I was doing it because I was feeling things while trying to mother that I could oh, not yeah. handle. And yep. so I was like, I just need a glass of wine yeah. because I could not handle the intense emotions that I was feeling mm. at the time. And so alcohol was like one of my coping mechanisms that that, I had. Isn't that so crazy how subtle it becomes too, you know, because... Totally. You know, inherently there's nothing wrong with alcohol in and of itself. And yet, you know, we see obviously the abuse of that um, so prevalent in our culture. And that's when it can get really deteriorating for our lives, for our hearts, for our souls. But alcohol, you name it, there's so many different things that we Mm -hmm. cope with that ultimately what it is, is we are using these things as like little G gods. Yeah. To, to turn to mm-hmm. in an effort to assuage the pain that's going on inside of us. Right. And it can be so subtle because it's like, I just don't want to deal with it tonight. Like, right. I just want to relax. I just want to have, like, nothing inherently wrong with that. Oh. However, your heart, you recognize, like, my heart mm-hmm. is turning to this. Right. And, and, and not yeah. dealing with the things that are, wow, that's And so, I think with trauma, too, um, because I know that Nona talks about this a little bit, but with trauma, you start coping. And so, but you don't even know, like for me with alcohol, it was easy to, like I could talk to my friends about it, but they didn't think I had a problem. They didn't know I was coping, like because it's totally normal to have a glass of wine at night. Um, But you don't even realize when, I think when you're in, when trauma produces intense feelings, yeah. not just, um, oh, I'm feeling fear. It's like mm. an intense amount of fear right. or anxiety. There's normal levels of anxiety and then there's these intense levels of right. anxiety. And right. so it, there is a reality that when you're experiencing trauma or like suffering like mm. grief or, um, you know, yeah, any loss of any kind that pr- just produces that intense, those intense feelings yeah. and you don't know what to do with them. And in our culture, I feel like we don't really talk about how to right, cope right. healthy. Um, and trauma is just becoming a conversation recently yep. where before it was like, yeah. What is this? And maybe we don't need, we like, I feel like in the past we've been called what it is, what it is, you know, coping mechanisms right. and stuff. Right. Like I've re- realized I've got some really weird coping mechanisms. <laughs> like, what are some of yours? Well, I, you know, for me, um, like cleaning, not, not the act of cleaning necessarily, but things being clean and like decluttered helps me so much emotionally, almost yeah. to the extent that like, 
if things are disheveled and out of place, which, mm-hmm. hello, we're living the reality right now of three kids and a four-month-old and all of that, right? <laughs> right. Things are disheveled. Good I luck. feel emotionally out of sorts when mm-hmm. things are disheveled. And so in kind of a weird, not I wouldn't say nowhere near the extent of like OCD, right. I like realize how much more at peace I am when the house is clean and things are put back in its mm-hmm. place. And I was thinking about that even today, you know, before we got onto this recording, I'm like, my heart is finding fulfillment and satisfaction in that mm. as opposed to, you know, finding like finding true peace and healing in the Lord. Yeah. You know, it's like I can't sit down and do my quiet time when the house is messy. I get just, I can like, oh, and I'm kind of all like a little anxious inside. That's a coping mechanism. Yeah. That's something that I'm turning to instead of really turning to the Lord, working out. You know, if I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta go get a workout in, I gotta blow off some steam. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, that's what we tell people like, hey, physical exercise is gonna really help you cope with and deal with the long term, you know, sustaining stress in your life. You Mm -hmm. need to do this, it's important, it's important to stay healthy. But when it becomes like the thing that you lean on, Mm -hmm. that's when it begins to be coping. Yeah. Oh, that is so hard to Isn't it? Isn't it? It's like, oh my gosh. Don't you hate how Jesus just like digs into the heart? Yes, (laughs) he totally does. He totally does. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, one of my friends, uh, Carlos Whitaker, he says, and he says it all over his Instagram, it's great, but he says, we were not meant to cope, we were meant to conquer. Mm, I think that's really shifted my perspective a lot, that there are seasons in trauma and grief where you aren't trying to work through coping, but long-standing, long-term coping is not the answer. It's not the plan. And so while there are times you have to go, okay, you know what, I need to kind of like manage some of these emotions, that's a means to an end, the end being... Let's really let's learn how to conquer these things. Let's learn how, right. learn how to move through this valley and come out on the other side thriving. Right. Like there is this reality. We do need to face our feelings right. and we need to acknowledge that they're there. Right. But Jesus intended for us to have true healing. Yeah. And I love so I love what you said. So good. Like so the good. the conquering, not yeah. just coping. Well, Nona's going to talk quite a bit about this as she discovered that for herself and her story. And um, But before we jump into all of this, uh, I, I want to ask if you guys would go and rate and review the podcast. This would be so nice for us. We would love it. Have you ever rated and reviewed the podcast, Maria? Oh, please don't ask me that right now. <laughs> not on my first co-hosting episode, Davey. Oh, that's so not kind of me, is it? <laughs> should I lie or should I tell the truth? What do I do? So much conflict. Well, it's okay. You can go and rate and review the podcast okay. when we get off of this. Do you like how I dodged the question? I didn't even answer. <laughs> I will uh, rate and review. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> but do it. And go follow nothing is wasted ministries on instagram follow them comment share um we want to hear from you we we want you to um leave some feedback we love hearing from you yeah and so um maria let's jump into this interview with, with nona that's good Nona, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm just really honored to be here. Well, um, I'm super excited about diving into your story and really excited about talking about this book that just released. Um, But before we dive into everything, can you give us just a little bit of an overview, kind of a flyover of the Jones family and what your life is like in, in context right now? 
Sure. So, well, right now, um, my first ministry is I'm married to uh, the love of my life, um, Tim Jones. He is not only my husband, but he's also my pastor. We lead a church together in Gainesville, Florida, mm. and we have two little boys. Uh, they're six and nine years old. Um, and, uh, they are miracles because I was actually told I would never have children. Um, I was told wow. I was infertile and the Lord saw fit to let me give birth to two amazing boys without the aid of medical intervention. So that's a miracle. Wow. Um, but that's my first ministry. And, um, my second ministry is I get to travel the world preaching and teaching the word of God, um, which I never would have imagined I would do. And I'll share more about that later. Um, uh, but then in my day job, I, uh, lead, uh, global faith-based partnerships at Facebook, which means I I get to work with pastors and church leaders and denominations all around the world to equip them to do ministry um, through the world's largest social network. And I also get to be the voice of faith um, when it comes to product decisions and policy decisions um, as it will impact um, impact the church. So uh, busy life. And like yeah. you said, just released uh, my book. And so that has me incredibly busy, but wow. that is my passion project. And so that's that's a little bit about me. Golly, that's incredible. Just out of those, th- those things that you just mentioned, I feel like we go on a billion rabbit trails. I could just ask you a bunch of questions about all these different avenues. Oh man, I can't imagine. You just stay really, really busy. Those two boys probably keep you extremely busy, I'm sure. Yes, <laughs> they do. <laughs> They're like my second and third husband. <laughs> I'm like the only girl in the house and they make sure I know it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, you, you just wrote this book and released it, Success from the Inside Out. And I love the message that you're carrying with this book because um, one of the things that you kind of have led out with as you're, um, as you're giving a preview of this book is that you in your life have found some success and found a lot of what the world would deem you know, success. And yet in the middle of it, you found yourself um, uh, still wounded and, and, and having suppressed some things that had gone on in your childhood. Can you, can you take us back um, to maybe uh, early on in your life and walk us through the timeline of some of these things that took place early on that it left uh, some, some wounding? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like to often say that I think people walk into the chapter that you're in in your life and they assume that's your entire story. Mm. Um, but I remember distinctly um, just a few years ago, uh, I was in a world, a role that was in the political world, and I would be at the White House very regularly. Um, I remember leaving a reception with the president. Um, this was President Obama's administration. I left a reception. I went back to my hotel room and broke down crying. Um, mm. And so many people, they saw the thing that I posted on Instagram, and they were like, oh, my gosh, I wish I was you, and I wish I could you know, be where you are. They had no idea that I was nursing a sense of um, unworthiness. And mm. that really came from um, when I was uh, born, um, even before I was born, my mom, she didn't want to have children. Uh, she had been born into a family with uh, you know, 11 other brothers and sisters, uh, a lot of poverty, a lot of violence. And I think she decided at a very young age that she did not want to have children because it was a very painful experience for her. Uh, and my father, he wanted to have children. They had been married for about 13 years um, by the time my mom found out she was pregnant. And she was actually really upset. Like she was mm. angry um, that she was pregnant. She felt like I would be a burden on her. And uh, my father, as excited as he was, um, he started to have stomach cramps about six months into her pregnancy. 
And so he went to the doctor to have a series of tests run. And when the results came back, he was diagnosed with um, terminal stomach cancer and they gave him mm. six months to live. Wow. And so, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, waiting to be a dad for so long to finally have this gift getting ready to enter the world and now you are going to die. And so I know he yeah. had a tremendous amount of just pain that he was nursing but you have to layer on top of that the fact that my mom um, had some really serious mental illness. Um, she was a gorgeous woman, but she had a mm. lot of anger inside of her. And they would get into arguments as, you know, most married couples have disagreements. But whereas you would kind of disagree and walk away, my mom would become enraged and physically attack him. And so, um, you know, layered on top of his diagnosis was the fear of what would happen to me mm. um, if, uh, if and when he passed away, that he couldn't protect me. So he actually asked um, her sister that he was pretty close with. He said, if anything happens to me, please take care of Nona. Um, should I die? And he actually lived another uh, couple of years. He almost made it to my second birthday before he passed away. But as soon as he died, my mom moved us. We were in New Jersey. She moved us to Florida uh, away from all of our family. And she um, was following after a guy she barely knew. And that relationship ended shortly after she moved. But uh, over the course of a couple years, a bunch of men just kind of came in and out of her life and in and out of my mm. life. And I remember it was almost like a parade until um, one day she settled on this guy who became her live-in boyfriend. And, um, you know, from an early age, I was probably about four, four and a half when he moved in. Um, I just, I, I didn't feel comfortable around him. I remember mm. uh, he would hold me too close to his body for too long and it just mm. made me uncomfortable. And then one day um, I was in kindergarten and uh, my mom, uh, her sister passed away. So she had to go back to New Jersey. She came to me and she said, Hey, I'm going to leave you with him and uh, I'll be back in a few days. And I remember saying to her, you know, mommy, please don't leave me. You know, I'll be good. Um, I won't ask for anything. I, I, I'll just, I'll be good. And she said, I can't afford another plane ticket. So you're going to have to stay here. And that very first night that she was gone, um, I, I locked my bedroom door because, mm. um, I just knew that I needed that barrier between me and him to be safe. But I learned that a straightened wire hanger could actually pick the lock. Mm. I learned that night, um, that he could unlock my door. And that was the, the first time that uh, I was sexually assaulted by him. Wow. Um, and I, I remember when my mom came back, you know, I was an entirely different child because afterward he told me, you know, you better not say anything to your mom or she'll mm -hmm. get rid of you. And he even said, you know, she never wanted you in the first place. And I knew that because he said that, I was like, oh, well, my mom has said that to him. And so when she came back, I didn't say anything. Like I, I was literally afraid to say anything. And the abuse would happen mm. uh, repeatedly. Whenever she was gone for work, she would work overnight. And um, I just remember one night uh, we were driving back home. She happened to take me with her to work one night. And we hadn't been alone for a long time, but she happened to take me with her. And I was probably about seven at the time. And as we were driving back home, I had this knot in my stomach. I was like, I did not want to go back to the house that he was in. And, uh, something broke within me. Like I knew he said she would get rid of me, but I just felt like I had to say something. And so I remember telling her what he did. And, um, it's, it's like, she became another person. When we got home, she put her things down, walked in the room that he was in and literally began beating him, like mm. beating him down. I remember hearing this, uh, and she walked past me when she was done and she called the police and they came and got him. 
And I thought everything was over. Like I thought that was the end. Um, And uh, they took him, they arrested him. He told them what he did. So he admitted what he did. Um, And they even brought me in for questioning. And I told them, you know, as best I could in my, you know, young vocabulary, what happened. And I remember the officers, they said, well, you know, we've got him now. You'll never have to worry about this again. But what they never counted on was the fact that uh, my mother would be his enabler. And so Mm. when he was released from prison, um, she actually took me with her to pick him up and bring him back to the house. And so you can imagine um, that was incredibly defeating for me because, you know, I didn't want him to come back and I, I was still afraid of him. And I frankly was in shame because I really felt like it was my fault that it happened. And so Mm. the fact that he was now coming back and my own mind corroborated the idea that I was at fault. I was like, well, apparently she thinks what he did wasn't that bad. So uh, he came back and um, the abuse continued again. And at the age of nine, I tried to take my life because I happened to watch a talk show and I learned that a um, toddler had died from drinking bleach. And so I had went in uh, the laundry room and I couldn't find bleach. So I drank laundry detergent. And what catalyzed that is that day, my mom and him were in an argument. They used to fight all the time. They were in an argument and she apparently must have asked him a question that he answered and she didn't believe him. So she asked me and I didn't have the context. She just called me out there and asked me this question. Mm. And so I gave her the answer, which apparently I guess was his answer because she started to choke me. And uh, I remember just screaming and struggling and um, it was so painful that when um, I was able to get out from her her grip, I ran to my closet and I, I hid myself in that closet and I just cried myself to sleep and I was in so much pain. And uh, I, again, I was nine years old and that was the day that I decided to try to end my life because I could not imagine that there would ever be anything better, that there would ever be anything worth living yeah. for. I couldn't imagine a better tomorrow. And so, um, I tried to do that, but nothing happened. And so, um, uh, I just had a stomach, a severe stomach cramps. And I think I ended up throwing up that night, but, um, it was a very traumatic time. Yeah. And, you know, a couple years later, a couple years after that, um, I tried to take my life again by slitting my wrists. And, um, this all happened because when I went to school, even, um, I was acting out at school because there was so much chaos at home And teachers began to label me as a problem child. They said things like I had a learning disability. Mm. And so I had all this discouragement and all this just trauma. And there was no safe place in my life that I could turn to. And so that's why I tried to take my life again. But Mm. it didn't work. And I know it didn't work because the hand of God was on me. I didn't know it at the time, though, because I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I never heard of a Bible or church or Jesus or any of this because we didn't talk about it. But uh, when I was in the sixth grade, shortly after I tried to take my life, uh, a classmate of mine invited me to go to church with her. Mm. Didn't know anything about church. And uh, I just assumed we were going to go to her house and you know, hang out, which I would have loved to do. And so um, I asked my mom if I could go. And she said, OK. We went to church. And uh, man, I remember you know, we parked in the parking lot, got out of the car. And there was all these people who were holding hands with each other. And they were smiling at each other. And it was like the first time I actually saw love, like Mm. real love. Uh, And when I walked in the building, people welcomed me. They didn't even know me, but they welcomed me as if they did. And I felt love. And so I immediately was like, wow, what is this place? And the very first sermon I ever heard, the preacher preached that God is a father to the fatherless. 
Wow. out of the book of Psalms. Um, and I immediately said, well, who is this God? Because I want my father and um, I need to know who this God is. And so I took a Bible home that day and began to study the Bible for myself at 11 years old, just because of what that preacher said. And I believe that God was speaking through that preacher exactly what he knew I needed to hear in mm. order for me to discover him. He had already found me. Now it was a matter of me finding him. And the abuse did not end immediately, but I got to tell you, you know, finally seeing that there was a God who loved me, that there was someone who loved me mm-hmm. was the, the mustard, seed, mustard seed of inspiration. Because I, I won't even call it faith then, because yeah. I wasn't in faith then. It was the mustard seed of inspiration that I needed in order to begin to discover mm. that there was more to life than my pain. And so that's where my journey really began to go in a different direction um, because all the pain of the past, it was there um, and it was still in my heart. But now I knew that there was a God who, before he formed me in my mother's womb, he had actually called me. Like yeah. He knew me. And uh, now I actually had a reason to, to consider a potential life um, that would be worth living. Wow. Wow. No, no, I love, I love that the the fact that one of the first messages or maybe the first message you ever heard preached was that God is a father to the fatherless because, you know, here you are losing your father so early, probably don't have very many memories of your father, if any at all. And there are a lot of folks who um, I've talked to that uh, that's the case for them. Maybe they've lost their father, they've had an abusive father, or the male figure in their life has been one that definitely does not reflect the heart of our heavenly father. Um, can you talk, talk to me about how maybe in this, the next part of this journey, how did God begin to fill in the gaps for you on understanding what the heavenly father really looks like, despite all of the different building blocks of a, you know, a a poor example of a father with this man that has been abusing you in your home for so many years? Yeah, I think... You know, God in his grace, he placed um, people in my life who were able to demonstrate his love to me. And um, one of the first people that did that was actually the youth pastor um, of Mm. that church. Um, I met him the very first day that I was there and he invited me to come back for their, you know, youth Sunday class. And I went and I was just amazed at all these young people who, you know, knew the Bible and they seemed Mm. so happy and so self-assured. And I think he and his wife really started to take me under their wing. Um, They would speak encouragement to me um, and they were constantly affirming me. And it was really kind of seeing that there were people who could actually speak life that Mm. I think opened my mind to the possibilities of better. Um, And just to kind of build on the the first part of my story, um, it was around this time that my mom, she actually kicked me out of the house. Um, Mm. I apparently forgot to... I guess, do the dishes or something. And she woke up one day in a rage and um, she told me to leave. And so I had to leave the house with nothing but my pajamas. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't imagine where to go. So I just started to think of the church and the church happened to not mm-hmm. be that far from my house. And so I started walking toward the church and I remembered that there was a family in our church um, that lived nearby and they lived in a trailer. And so I went up to the trailer and I knocked on the door and the the mother answered the door and she saw me. She was like, Hey, how are you? And she, she then like took me in and she was like, Oh my gosh, why are you out here like this? Mm. And I told her what happened. Um, and she, you know, she welcomed me in the house, her uh, family, her husband was away. They were fishing or something. 
she took me in the house and um, gave me something to eat. And she just said, I'm so sorry. She was like, listen, you can stay here as long as you need to stay here. We're going to pray with you. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. she really, really just made, again, God's love tangible to me. And I ended up staying with them for quite some time. And it was just, it was the hand of God, because even though they lived in a trailer, they did not have a lot of money. We would sit around the dinner table and they would talk about things with their kids. Like, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? Um, you know, you, you should be a doctor, mm. you should be a lawyer. Like they started to talk about like a vision for their yeah. future, which is something I never had. And so sitting around that dinner table is where I began to imagine that maybe there's something more that I could do. And so in many ways, when my mother kicked me out of the house, she was actually pushing me into the next phase (laughs) of my destiny, that God needed me to be at those tables in order for me to really begin to hear his voice and what he had for me in the future. And so I, I look at those experiences and I now see, even though that was a devastating time, it was an uncertain time. Mm. And I felt discarded. I mean, I really remember, Mm. um, when she kicked me out of the house, I thought to myself, why do I have to go and he gets to stay? Mm. Like he said that you were going to get rid of me. Like, that's what I thought in my mind. I was like, and he was right. I just didn't, I didn't understand. But after, um, uh, after about a month or so of me being away, I got called down to the principal's office one day. This was in middle school and, uh, my mom just so happened to be there. And she was actually upset with me because she said, you know, why haven't I heard from you? You've been gone as if I like chose to leave. But yeah, <laughs> that's just, you right. know, kind of a depiction of the the, the craziness that was happening in my life. Um, but God literally worked in those dark places. It was in my darkest places where mm-hmm. the light of God was the most vibrant. Um, and I think that was the time. That was the moment. I remember when I made the decision that I was going to find a way to get a full scholarship to college Mm. and I was never going to go home. Like it was in that darkness that I actually made a decision that would set me up for where I am today, which is I'm going to do my schoolwork. I'm going to be a model student. um, I'm going to be the best I could possibly be. And I changed my behavior. I changed the way that I showed up. um, And it was in that moment that I became the the new person, the new Mm. Nona, Um, But I will say what I've learned now as I look back on that experience is I really kind of turned uh, my trauma inside out. The trauma was still there. Mm -hmm. It was just manifesting itself differently because at first I was manifesting my trauma as being disrespectful and uh, being combative. But then I turned my trauma inside out and I wanted to be perfect. Uh, I wanted to please people. And, um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a good thing, but I didn't know that it just ended up being a good thing to get me where I needed to go. Right. Uh, But later on in life is when I would discover how to, how to get free from even that type of type of trauma. Yeah. That's so, what's, it's so interesting that trauma can manifest itself in so many different ways. And, um, you know, we, we're in a small group right now where we're studying, um, emotionally healthy spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, but he talks about like family of origin and he talks about the things that are kind of, you know, you, you just kind of, uh, end up absorbing because of what your family has done, how they've always done things or, or in your case, different uh, abuse that you've gone through. And, and so because of it, you, you cope, you figure out a way to make it not feel, uh, as painful and so what you're saying is first, it was this, you know, I'm going to be rebellious. I'm going to kind of push back. I'm going to, and then y- you begin to s- start entering into this healing process though, which I think is really awesome that 
God's family, the church, as much as the church has its blights, as much as it has its different, you know, we can say some things about a lot of people have church hurt type stories, but when you didn't have, when your family wasn't there for you, when your family ostracized you, when your family pushed you out, God's family came in and demonstrated to you what a family is supposed to look like, which began to put back some of the healing building blocks into your life and begin to show you a true, you know, who is this God? Who is this God that can not just save me, not just rescue me, uh, but heal me? I love that too, that you reckon, like you're recognizing now the perspective of when my, when my mom kicked me out, um, and in some ways you can look at that perspective as, yeah, my mom kicked me out or, or man, God rescued me. He preordained this. He was going to use this really awful thing that was happening in my life to bring me into a place where he was going to restore and redeem and, and heal me ultimately. Um, I love that. That's amazing. So, so now you're in this place where you're okay, high achiever. I'm going to, you know, make the grades. I'm going to get the scholarship and it's begun to lead you down this pathway of, of success, really everything that from the outside, um, looking in that you, you would have wanted for your life. Can you talk to me a little bit about that journey before we kind of get back to the place where you came back from the white house and you realized I'm, I got, I got some stuff I got to work through. Yeah. So, um, when I kind of made the decision that, okay, I am now going to become the best that I can be, frankly, so I can leave this situation. Um, some really interesting things happened. Um, when I was in the sixth grade, when I was in the fifth grade, um, going into the sixth grade, uh, there was an opportunity for students to go into advanced classes. Mm. And, um, my fifth grade teacher ended up not recommending me for them because she said my behavior was just too bad. And so, um, I started off sixth grade in regular classes, but then, um, my teachers, they saw how I was performing. And in the middle of my sixth grade year, they just automatically promoted me to advanced classes. And I remember being in those classes with these kids who were so bright and like their whole lives had been so sheltered. And I mean, Mm. they lived in mansions and they had like nannies and tutors and I had none of that. And so I felt so like unworthy to be in these um, groups with these kids. And I felt really uh, like less than, but I was there. And so I knew I had to perform. Mm. And so, yeah, I started to really channel my own feelings of insecurity into ambition where it was like, Mm. you know, yeah, I don't belong to be here, but I'm going to show you. (laughs) And so I would make uh, really good grades. I started to uh, get involved in, you know, student organizations and I became like president of organizations and going all the way through high school. Um, I ended up in all these leadership roles. And I think um, because I was getting kind of that affirmation from people Mm. that, oh, you're so good, you're so good. um, I just kind of kept doing that um, without realizing that I was actually kind of setting myself up because Mm. I used the word earlier for perfectionism. Um, I believe that perfectionism is actually an outgrowth of trauma. Mm. Um, I think that people strive for for perfection usually because they're just trying to control um, their environment. They're trying to control what people think of them. But there's no such thing as perfection because we're imperfect people. And as a matter of fact, everyone's idea of perfect is different. And so that's why there is no such thing as perfection. (laughs) So I um, ended up graduating from high school at at the top of my class, got a full scholarship to college, you know, went to college, was doing amazing. And um, similarly got all these leadership roles. And then uh, I graduated from college, got great honors. I mean, it was awesome. 
And I went into the workforce and um, a year after I graduated from college, I ended up in this really big um, executive leadership role for a Fortune 100 company. And it was so incredible. Um, It was such a great opportunity. But that perfectionism within me, it just went into overdrive Mm. because I remembered you know, being told I would never be anything, being told I was defective, I was lazy and all these things, these voices were in my head and they all had the sound of my mom and my teachers. And oh, so wow. um, even though I was in this role that many people would have loved to be in, I still felt like I wasn't worthy. Mm. So I would work extra hard, work extra long hours. I mean, I was married by this time and I really was married to my husband, but I was actually married to my job mm. because that's where I derived so much of my value. And so it was it was really in that season where I began to shift my ambitions into high gear. It was like, I want to achieve at any cost because that's how I feel like I matter. Yeah. Um, now, mind you, I was still in ministry. I was still in the church. Um, I was someone who I think um, people were looking up to even then. But I had challenges because mm. I knew what the word of God said, but I don't think I really knew the word of God. Mm. Can you articulate the the difference between that as you see it now? So I think I think that there is head knowledge. Like mm. I think um, there are so many books about you know self worth and self value and you know how we are um, you know created on purpose and created with intention. You can know that in your mind and not believe it in your heart. Yeah. And I think where that comes into play is I see people, I mean, I know these people who are deeply successful, like they have all the money, they have the notoriety, and yet they're not happy. Mm. They're not happy. I mean, I was in that boat too. Hey, Nothing Is Wasted family. I'm beyond excited to tell you about our bonus episode guest this month, my friend and mentor, Ken Roberts. Ken was on episode 29 and came back to talk through more of his redemptive story and bless you, our listeners, with his wisdom. It is pretty timely that Ken came back during the same month we're launching our Nothing Is Wasted community groups because the group. To hear Ken in this bonus episode and for a taste of who he is and how he can help you or someone you know, head over to nothingiswasted.com slash partners make a recurring monthly tax-deductible donation of $20 or more, and begin listening. If you are hesitant about committing $20 a month, you can start a seven-day free trial to preview the bonus content that we have under our partner program. Again, that's nothingiswasted.com slash partners. Here is a preview of my conversation with John Calvin said that our that our greatest transformation happens when knowing self and knowing God comes together. And as long as we're putting false images up and putting our best side and our shiny image, you know, and trying to fool God or whatever. Right. But when we get to those places and transitions where we say, you know, God, I'm hurting here. Yeah. Lord, there's disappointment here. God, there's pain here. God, there's brokenness here. God, there's uncertainty here. God, there's confusion here. So that's the swing thing in a transition in anybody's life is when we move to the middle and we're now looking up and we're looking in. So were there any like warning signs 
leading up to it, but I mean, you have this like kind of crisis moment after your, you know, event at the, at the white house, right. That we, you referred to earlier, but I mean, here you are, you're a pastor's wife, you're in the church, you're, you know, you've got the, as you said, the, the head knowledge of God's word, but did you see any warning signs in there that probably should have triggered you to go, you know what, I, I need to investigate this, but because you were so such a fast-paced Mach 6, you know, high achiever, going, 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 you maybe ignored those or pushed those aside? If so, what were some of those warning signs? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, things that I think back on now, and they were so marginal and petty, but things like, you know, say I did something and somebody else did something and they got recognized, but I didn't. Mm. Like somebody might be like, oh, well, that kind of sucked. That would ruin my week. Hmm. Like I would constantly think like, what was wrong with me? You know, why didn't I get recognized? Like, why didn't I matter? Uh, Why didn't what I did actually rise to the level of recognition? Um, So things like that would happen pretty regularly. And whenever they happened, it was like I heard my mom's voice in the back of my head saying, see, I told you, Hmm. I should have never had you things like that. Wow. Wow. So you have this kind of this crisis moment then, uh, somewhat of an emotional breakdown. Describe to me that moment and, and kind of the, the after effect of it as well. What, what it, what it led you to. Yeah. Like I, I went back to my hotel room and again, it gets back to this idea of not being enough. I went back to my hotel room and, you know, I left this reception with all these amazing people who, I I just I loved everyone in the room, but it, it just reminded me like, gosh, all these people are doing so much more than I am. Mm. You know, all these people they have, you know, more prestige, they have more, you know, wealth, they have more connections. And in that moment, I just felt like I didn't matter. Mm. And it was so crazy because it was like the fact that I was even in the room yeah. should have told me <laughs> that there was a level um, of, of worth there, but um, I didn't believe that, that I actually mattered. And it goes back to the idea that, and this is something that I've said, is many people, as- they, they aspire for the trappings of success, but mm. they just end up trapped in success mm. because you think that it's those trappings that are going to make you feel worthy. But what ends up happening is the more you accumulate, the more you realize there are people who have more. Yeah. And so you just end up in this constant, you know, um, hamster wheel of, you know, okay, if I get that, then I'll, I'll be successful. If I get the bigger position, I'll be successful. If I make more money, I'll be successful. Uh, and this translates to ministry. You know, I know, I know many pastors who are, gosh, if I can just get, you know, another thousand people, I'll be successful. If I can get to 10,000 people, I'll be successful. If I can preach at this conference, then I'll be successful. And it never ends. Um, and so I think yeah. it was in that moment where God just began to speak to me. And he was like, he was like, Nona, you have taken your sense of self-worth from what people say, from what people think, but you have yet to internalize what I think about you, what I've said Mm. about you. And it was really in that moment that I think I began to understand how little I knew about God, even though I knew the word in my head, I didn't have it in my heart. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, um, once that happened, then what, what did that healing journey look like? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm assuming at that point you're going, I, I need to get some help. I need to, I need to kind of uncover some of this stuff and dig into why I'm feeling this way. Yeah. Describe to me a little bit of that healing journey. What did you end up doing from there? One of, one of the first things that I did is um, I just took time to pray, like just mm. really 
pray. Um, and I got before God in a very vulnerable way. And I said, Lord, I, I literally feel like nothing I'm doing right now matters. Mm. Like I, I feel like I don't matter as a person. And I said, but the problem is it has nothing to do with what I'm doing and everything to do with what I believe about myself. And I began to study about, um, the, the armor of God and the fact that, you know, we're told to put on the helmet of salvation. Mm. It's like, what, what is that for? Like, Lord, what, why did you say to put on a helmet of salvation? It's because so much of our trauma, it ceases from being outside of us and now it's inside of us Mm. and it begins to affect our thoughts. Yeah. It begins to affect the way that we think of ourselves and our situations. And God said that I did not have on the helmet of salvation. And so therefore, uh, my mind was was basically being run by the the various thoughts that were telling me what I wasn't and who I who I wasn't and what I'll never be. Um, and I almost feel like in many ways, it was like the situation with Peter in Matthew 26, when, you know, he denied Jesus those three times and then the rooster crowed mm. and he was filled with anguish. The Bible says he wept bitterly because the sound of the rooster signaled to him the shame of his betrayal. And for me, going to all of those different parties and events and being at the White House and all these amazing functions, as crazy as it may sound, like it became almost like a mirror to Mm -hmm. say, yeah, you're here, but you're not really a part of this. Like you're on the outside Mm -hmm. of it. So uh, I had to pray through it. And I said, Lord, I need you to fix my mind. I need you to fix my mind. I need you to fix the way that I see myself. I need you to fix the way um, that I even believe about myself because something within me is broken. And it was through that prayer that God began to lead me into various studies in the Bible. And what I understood is that there was a root of bitterness within me Mm. because of what happened to me. And that root of bitterness is what had begun to defile me. Um, I thought I had gotten over what happened to me, but in fact, I didn't get over it. I just brought it with me wherever I went. Um, It was like a piece of luggage. Um, And so God began to show me through his word that there was territory in my heart that needed to be reclaimed. And the only way to do that was through forgiveness. Mm, Wow. Had you up to this point, had you talked to people about your sexual abuse early on? Is it something that you kept hidden? Describe to me a little bit of that journey on when that began to like uh, play out as far as you talking, talking about that. Great, great question. Um, so I ended up sharing what happened to me actually somewhat inadvertently when I was in college, I had kept it a secret up until that time. Um, but I was in college and, um, a roommate that I was, um, living with on, in a dorm, she had begun to get really, really depressed. And, um, Mm. I just noticed a change in her. And one night we were going to sleep and I heard her sniffling, uh, under the covers. And, you know, I basically was like, Hey, what's going on? You know? And she was like, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, listen, you know, I'm here for you. You know, whatever you want to say, please say it will never go outside of this room. And then she proceeded to tell me, um, that she had been raped at a a party. Mm. And she said, you know, I feel so worthless. She was like, I, I, I feel broken. I feel numb. Like, I don't, I don't even know what to do. And it was at that point that when she said that, uh, I began to share what happened to me because I said, oh my gosh, I totally understand. And I'm so sorry. And she was like, how could you understand? You don't understand. Mm. So I told her what happened to me. And, um, it was so amazing that it was like the spirit of the room shifted. 
not only did it shift for me, but it shifted for her because she sat up and she looked at me and she was just like, you know, what did you do? Like, how, how do you deal with this? And, uh, I just had to tell her, you know, listen, I'm a Christian and, um, I don't know why this happened to you and I don't know why it happened to me, but I do know that God loves you and God wants to heal your heart Mm -hmm. and God wants to heal what's broken. And the thing about it is, you know, she was an atheist when I first moved in. She saw uh, one of my Bibles that was just sitting on a uh, desk and she was like, oh, I hope you're not one of those Jesus freaks. Um, (laughs) But, you know, through that situation and me sharing my story, I was able to then lift up um, the the name of Jesus in the midst of that. And so that was the first time I I said what happened to me. And I said it inadvertently, like I didn't plan to. But after that, um, I did start to share um, just kind of slowly. And then somehow, because I'm already in ministry, I began to weave it into messages that I would preach just Mm. like, you know, about God's power to heal. And so that's how I started to share. And I've started to share more and more openly until, you know, I've, I've told my story in front of thousands of people, um, you know, at various conferences. Um, and I've seen the power of that vulnerability really change lives. One of the things I believe in my heart, this is why I tell people to share your pain is because, um, shame, grows in darkness. That's right. Yeah. Shame is like mold. Mm -hmm. It has to have darkness in order to grow. Um, and it requires that we don't, um, speak about it. It requires that Mm -hmm. we don't give voice to it in order for it to stay, um, in order for it to stay alive. Um, and that's why when I think about what we're doing, we're really fighting against the kingdom of darkness mm-hmm. because that's where shame is. And so, right. um, yeah. Wow. So as you're discovering this and you're you're in this kind of healing process, God's taking you on this journey through scripture, opening things up to you. Um, what, what was it? Are there some like other tangible things that you would say to somebody? Because I feel like there's a lot of people that especially gals who have experienced something like this, rape, sexual abuse, what your friend said to you seems to be the, uh, the normative, the, I feel numb. I feel, you know, um, I feel, uh, like, uh, apathetic and different now. Like I, and you were, you were helping her to understand, to, to open up and begin to bring these things into light. But, how would you help somebody understand what it looks like to heal as you were, as you were walking through this healing process as well? You know, did you see counseling? Was there, I mean, what were some just healing pathways for you in this journey? So, you know, I, first of all, I think that therapy is so important for people. Um, I unfortunately did not have therapy because I didn't even know it was an option when Mm. I was going through this, but I was blessed in um, several ways. One, I'm an avid reader. So um, whenever I have faced a challenge, whenever I have needed um, insight, I would go to the bookstore and pick up a book. And um, actually one of the first books I read when I was going through this process of kind of um, just really seeking peace was um, Approval Addiction by Joyce Meyer. Um, Mm. It ended up being just a really, really powerful um, book that helped me to not only confront my need for approval, but also to understand what was behind it and the brokenness that was behind it. Um, I also started to read a lot of books by um, people like Brene Brown. Um, Mm -hmm. One of her books called Rising Strong um, just ended up being a really powerful uh, resource for me um, and helping me to, again, 
confront the brokenness in my past, confront what it was doing to me in my present and figure out how to reshape my future um, through all of that. So that's really what I did. And I think coupled with being able to be around a community of believers who were encouraging and affirming. And as I began to really share my story, I honestly believe that is where my healing came from, Mm, um, is when I was able to speak it out loud. Look, this is what happened. Um, this this is what happened to me. I think for a long time I thought that uh, I was, you know, damaged goods or mm-hmm. I was somehow beyond repair. Um, but as I began to really share what God had done in light of all of the success that He had given me, um, I realized that, man, Lord, You have truly given me beauty for ashes. And mm-hmm. so that's that's what I did: is a lot of prayer, a lot of study, a lot of reading. And just being surrounded by people who who loved and affirmed me on a regular yeah. basis. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that um, there is a lot of healing that people miss out on because they're not willing to uh, talk about it and share it. You know, and I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like that's one of the healing secrets that God has for us that he's kind of uh, invited us into. Psychology has figured that out as well when they talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and just, you know, seeing a a therapist talking things out. But for whatever reason, there seems to be, um, this, this thing that happens where bondage is broken. When we begin to talk some of these things out, you mentioned earlier too, about this, um, this idea that you're, you, you know, we talked a little bit about how you had the head knowledge, kind of the head knowledge of God's word, but it hadn't matriculated to your heart. Um, how did in this journey, did that begin to travel those 18 inches to your heart to where you begin to actually believe that? I imagine the first time you're not going, Hey, you know what? I am worthy. I am like, you know, what does that look like? What's that journey to go? No, I actually do feel it and sense it and know it, not just know it, you know? You know, it really got activated um, through forgiveness. You know, I I think that, you know, as long as we're holding on and we have a sense of um, injustice towards someone, I believe that almost acts as a block between mm. the, the, the spirit, the soul, and the body. Like, I believe that injustice kind of clogs up that um, that mechanism where we're supposed to be able to hear from God and that then informs how we feel, what we think and what we do. And then that informs our, our, the way that we control our body. But as long as there's unforgiveness within us, in many ways, um, we're controlled by our body. Mm. So God can't even really speak to us because there's this bitterness within us that's acting as a blockade. So when I really began to sit down and think about, all the hurt that I had inside of me, all the pain that I had inside of me, all of the sense of injustice that I had inside of me. And I just began to give it over to God. I was like, Lord, Mm. this hurts. I don't know why it happened. I wish it didn't happen. But you know what? The people who did it, chances are they were hurt too. And Mm. uh, whether they were or weren't, I'm going to choose to believe that there's no way for a person who's filled with love to hurt somebody else. So um, I need to just let this go. And I think it was in forgiving them and praying for them. Mm. I mean, I pray for my mom every day, even though we're not in relationship. And that's because uh, her mental illness, I think, has just made it such that she just can't really have a positive health relationship. But I pray for her every single day. And um, I just believe that that's what has helped to heal me is one, lifting up the story, not letting darkness rule. And then number two, choosing to forgive and just choosing to say, you know what? 
everything that happened in my past really should not have happened, but it's not worth my future. Yeah. And the longer that I hold on to it, the longer I'm actually giving my future over to my past. Man. Wow. That's great. So in forgiving, um, you, and, and in praying for your perpetrators, you know, your mom, this man, you know, you, there may not be anything that shifts in the spiritual for them, but there's drastic things that shift in the spiritual for you. And sometimes I wonder if that's what really Jesus was getting at when he said, pray for your enemies and, you know, those that persecute you. It's not necessarily that you're trying to change them through that prayer. It's that you're trying, that (laughs) Jesus is inviting us to be changed through that as well. That's exactly what it is. And um, I believe in his just omniscience and divine providence. He knew that in order for us to get free, we have to free the people who have placed us in bondage. Mm. Because if you remember, when 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 you are in many ways, when you are um, when you have something against somebody, you are constantly thinking about it. It's on your mind, um, and chances are those people have forgotten about it. They've moved on. Yeah. But you're the one right. who now has that memory shackled to you, and you're taking it everywhere that you go as you pray for them, what you're doing is you're actually creating distance. Cause That's it's right. like, you know what, Lord, I want you to bless them. I want you to just give them grace, give them mercy. And now that no longer can have a grip on your heart because now your heart is free. Um, but as long as we hang on to it, it's like, we're basically walking around with this memory, um, shackled to us and it, it just destroys us. Wow. That's so good. No, no. What are you, what are you hoping to, um, impart into people with this book? Uh, it's called success from the inside out. What do you, what's the message you really want to make sure people get from this? I want people to know a couple of things. One shame is not the end of your story. Mm. And I should say that there are, there's a difference between guilt and shame. We use those terms interchangeably, but you know, guilt is about what you do. You Mm -hmm. feel guilty because you did something wrong. You made a mistake. And you address that guilt by changing your future behavior. And so guilt becomes about behavior. But shame is different. It's more sinister. Um, Shame is Mm. about identity. Yeah, it's about what I believe about myself because of what I Mm. did. And so what I'm hoping that people get out of this book is, number one, God does not want to use you in spite of your past. He wants to Mm. use you because of it. It doesn't invalidate you. Like what happened to you, what you did actually becomes the foundation for the ministry that God wants to birth through you. That's great. So that's one thing. And the second thing I want people to understand is, you know, there is a success that empties and there is a success that fills. God wants us to experience the type of success that fills, the Mm. type of success that that leaves us feeling joyful, that leaves us feeling loving and kind. So many of us are stressed out on our jobs. We're trying to get the bigger position, office, title, salary, because we feel like if I get there, then finally I will matter. Um, And that's just not healthy. And so I'm hoping that people will take from this book a roadmap on how to, number one, experience the full beauty of who God has created you to be, whether you're the janitor or the CEO. God has something really special inside of you. Right. And no matter what happened to you, no matter what you did, you're never beyond repair. Yeah. And God has the power to use that 
for his glory. Man, that's so great. No, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking some time with us and just sharing this with with our listeners. And I mean, wh- exactly what you said right there with the the pain that has happened to you in the past are, is the building blocks for the ministry that God wants to do through you. That it's not in spite. That's exactly the message that we're trying to carry forward and help these listeners uh, who are dealing with some hard things. Um, you know, all kinds of tragedy and trial in their life. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm inspired by the way that you have uh, turned your pain around into purpose. And so thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. This has really been a blessing. I really loved that conversation with mm-hmm. Nona. It was good. It was so good. And one thing that she said that really stood out to me was how shame grows in darkness. Yeah. And just Mm -hmm. how trauma really can birth so much shame. Right, right. And if 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 you're not aware and you don't, you know, she's, Nona's one of those that I I resonated with her a lot because she just, she's a Mm go-getter. And you can just go, 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 go and not realize that underneath the surface there's something festering until one day it just... And everything implodes. How many high achievers do we know that their life just implodes? Yeah. Because they've never, they've never dealt with the issues that are at hand. They've never dealt with the trauma that's Mm -hmm. gone on. Yep. Well, we want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. Thank you, Ryan, for your friendship and your music and your generosity (laughs) for providing this. You can download his music, Sleeping at Last, anywhere music can be downloaded and streamed. And Maria, speaking of trauma... Next week, we have a conversation with a trauma therapist. Yes. It's incredible. I know this is a topic you're interested in. Yes. I'm interested in. We're kind of uncovering a lot of this as a, yep. as a nation right now. There's a, it's a hot conversation, a hot mm-hmm. topic. And uh, this conversation is with Andy Kolber. And uh, she's written a book about trauma and healing through trauma. And so if you're interested, this is a topic that you're interested in. You definitely don't want to miss this conversation with Andy. Why don't you listen to this little clip from my conversation with her next week? I grew up in a really chaotic and dysfunctional family. It was mm. it was loving in many respects, but um, I experienced a lot of verbal and emotional abuse, especially from my father. Um, my mom, in in the midst of that system, system became an alcoholic, mm. and and so even though she really loved us, she was pretty unavailable to us in times that we really needed her um, to be there for us as we're trying to navigate a parent who was essentially the source of a lot of the trauma. 